On October 11th, 2018, the Packet Pushers will hold a virtual design clinic. This is a free event for you. Think of it like a mini conference where you get to hear from industry experts about cool things that they are working on, techniques that you can learn from and maybe apply to your environment, and maybe a sponsor with an interesting product to discuss. It's all free. No one's going to spam you. You have to opt in if you want to hear from anyone after the event. To participate, packetpushers.net slash VDC. Register for free. Today's show, for folks listening in, we're actually live at Microsoft Ignite as we record this on September 26th. There's been a lot of announcements. I've written down a lot of them. It's Azure, 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 but also a lot of other things, some data box and blueprints and things like that. Deep breath. Here we go. All right, so let's dig right into it. First, I'll start by introducing my guests. A returning guest on the show, Jeffrey Snover, welcome back. And for those that maybe didn't catch your earlier show last year at Ignite, shame on you. Tell us, who are you at Microsoft? What do you do? And kind of what are you focusing on these days? Yeah, so I'm a Microsoft Technical Fellow, and I am now currently the Chief Architect for Azure Storage, Media, and Cloud Edge. And Cloud Edge includes Azure Stack, where I've been spending most of my time the last couple of years, as well as Databox. Okay, okay. And Mike Nelson, welcome to the show, newbie. Thank you. So welcome. What is it that you do, and uh, what do you focus on in the Microsoft ecosystem? I am a field technologist for Rubrik, and I am really focused uh, as a Microsoft MVP in uh, cloud and data center management and making a move towards the Azure realm and doing a lot of stuff in there. All right. Let's start with, you were telling us a story before we started recording about as you enter the storage world, what was it? Tell the story. Yeah, so I'm new to the storage world, and so I thought, well, you know, what better way to you know, learn my area than to sign up for doing sort of the keynote for storage. Wait, wait, you start in an area by keynoting it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it forces me to go have the conversation with people, to go do my homework, you know, what is it that we're doing, et cetera. I, I treat it very seriously, right? These people have worked their butts off, and I want to honor their work and make sure it's shown in its best light. And so I was reviewing things, you know, what they've done, just amazing, amazing engineering. And uh, then I looked at the way we were talking about it. I thought to myself, hey, you know, I, I don't think we're really telling this story the right way. Okay. And, and there's a couple flavors to that. So the first is, you know, a lot of it was just sort of feature function. Hey, I added this feature, I added this function. We used to do three and now we do four. Okay, that's great. And I said, I think instead what we want to do is we want to have more of a customer-focused conversation. And what I said was, okay, so that's the talk that I gave uh, a couple days ago. And what I said was, as customers, you have four different types of data, right, storage requirements. There's information worker storage. There's application storage. There's storage for business analytics. And then there's hyperscale. Not everybody has hyperscale, but that's like, you know, cloud and mobile and then there's a set of requirements that you have, your responsibilities that you have for each of these types of data. You have to make sure that data is, is durable, that it's always there, that it's always available. You have to make sure that it's secure. You have to make sure you don't run out of capacity. You have to make sure that it's protected and backed up, et cetera. There's a number of different characteristics. And so let's walk through each one of those responsibilities and how you do it on-premises, the different strategies Thank you, you so take. much for saying premises. I just, thank you. Yeah. I hate on-premise. Please, don't let me derail, but... No, I got you, Thank baby. you. <laughs> I got you. On-premises, everybody, like it's a catechism, 
on premises. On premises. <laughs> okay, so what are the strategies we employ to to protect the data or you know manage these responsibilities on premises? And then what do we do in Azure Storage to do accomplish the same thing? And step by step for every single characteristic for every single type of data, what you'll see is that by far you are better off handling your responsibilities by having Azure deal with your storage from capacity to cost to security, et cetera. You know, like to take security, right? Here's the question. Do you check the firmware of every single disk drive to make sure that there are no security vulnerabilities in the firmware of the disk drive? Mike, do you do that? No. Okay. No. We do. I I was going to pretend to say yes in case everyone else said yes, but no, (laughs) I don't get that low level. Exactly. You know, when a machine goes, you know, dies, do you take the disks and shred them in a big shredder? We do. I mean, we just, every single step of the way, we protect your data to an incredible degree. Anyway, so then as I was thinking through that narrative, it really hit me that our conception of the cloud has completely changed. And I'm not sure anybody stopped noticed it, and then communicated that. Because if you recall the early days of the cloud, what would we say? Well, you know, it's sort of like RAID, right? All redundant array of inexpensive disks. I used to say many times, well, the, the, the software-defined everything, we're going to take the magic of software to turn inexpensive stuff into gold-plated SLA. Highly available, yeah. secure, yeah. all the... The items that you yeah. talked about. Yeah, and the theory there was, okay, listen, I'm going to give you a bunch of you know, really inexpensive, uniform compute stuff. They're going to fail, but you change your application and deal with that failure, and you can do a much better job, right? You, so you'll have great reliability because you rewrote your application. Yeah, that failed. That's why I've got two copies, blah, blah, blah. And instead, what has turned out, and by the way, we call that PaaS, right? That continues. That model still continues. But now what in fact happened is that Microsoft and some of the other vendors basically have gone the other direction, and we do that work for you to produce these virtual machines, which really, if you step back and think of them, are better than Tier 1 machines you can buy, Tier 1 hardware machines you can buy. Oh, sure. These virtual machines have better data durability, better IOPS, uh, more capacity, et cetera. In my demo, I had somebody come up on stage, and she went and created basically uh, two petabytes worth of disk space attached to a machine. Two petabytes of disk space. <laughs> I said, right, now do dir minus recurse. The first right. thing I'm thinking is like, oh, my gosh, the billing. But, you know, fun to play with. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And that ties into some of the features that I saw, too. Oh, great. The, like, kind of relating that, because I think the story absolutely needs to be said. And Mike and I were talking about this a little bit earlier about the ultra SSD tier, the standard SSD tier. I think the yeah the standard one is generally available. The ultra SSD is publicly available or uh, public preview. Exactly. Preview. Uh, pardon me. Yep. Um, what's the thought there? So is that you driving that to say like, hey, we need bigger, we need faster, we need more, and you're tying it to a use case, or is this kind of what you talking about earlier, which is the iterative? Now it's faster, better. Well, let me be clear. Not. Me? No. I just joined the team. <laughs> yeah. This is a rock star team. I mean, I tell you, it's, it's embarrassing. I mean, <laughs> they've done this incredible work over the last two years that's now bearing fruit. And I get to stand up in front and say, look what we did. And I had nothing to do with it. I'll make that super clear. But I hopefully I'm able to uh, highlight how to tell their story in a way that gives them maximal credit. But no, what the team's done is indeed talked about the different types of storage. And by the way, this is one thing that differentiates my team's approach from some of the competitors in the industry, and that is our focus in on architecture, okay? 
So the other players, what they'll do is they'll say, hey, we need something, and they'll stand something up. And they say, well, well I need one th- another thing, and they'll stand up another thing. And those are separate things. When we do storage, we have a common storage layer, right? Extreme storage, partition layer, front end. And then we're building a world where you put multiple front ends and protocols on top of it. So we just announced HDFS, right? That's the Hadoop file system. And it is just a separate, a new head on top of blob storage, okay? So in the past, when it was different, well, geez, if I want to access it and then put it in, and then I got to do a data migration over HDFS, and then did I get the ACLs right? Are they protected similarly, et cetera? And they get two different ecosystems, and then I'm paying for the data twice because it's in two different places. Here, we've got common storage. So every improvement I make in durability, every improvement I make in availability, et cetera, benefits everyone. Then I put multiple heads on that so that I open up different ecosystems, but I've got common security, et cetera. And then we surface that uh, through the various uh, uh, workloads. So it's a much better architectural approach. And a question I have on that is, is in the uh, meetings that we had on Sunday for the pre-days, um, they talked about, when they talked about the Ultra SSD specifically, you're talking about uh, something that's just incredible to me, 160,000 IOPS. <laughs> is that crazy? Uh, less than a, a second of latency. I mean, that's incredible, right? But one of the things that I thought was really cool was they told us that, that they, they've actually been working on this for over two years. So this has been in the. This is not something that just like you said just pops up and like, hey, we've got to get this storage out there and we've got to make it really fast. They've been working on it for a long time and they've gone through a year of testing alone just to make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing and as fast as it's doing it, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the great things about Microsoft, right? Microsoft always has been a player for the long, you know, in it for the long term. Yeah, it's great. And by the way, that's why. You see us take the architectural approach. Look, taking the architectural approach is much harder than the, oh, I got an itch, scratch it approach to just releasing a feature. And, and boy, at the beginning, when you do that type of engineering, it's like, wow, look at those guys. They did that. They added this, and then they added that. And, oh, my heavens, this, they're rocking, rocking. What's with these guys? They're so slow. And then time <laughs> catches up. Time catches up, and all of a sudden, this technical debt just starts to grind and grind, and oh, everything fell apart. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. And the slow thing is like, oh, and then I just had this. Oh, and then I just had that. You know, one of the, my favorite stories is the whole data durability story, right? So you know, we've had LRS. So for people who are not familiar with this, it's local redundant storage. Yeah, let's make sure we expand all acronyms. <laughs> yeah. Quote, unquote, double-click them. Double-click them. Ugh. Okay, when LRS. When you write a blob <laughs> in uh, Azure storage, you don't write a blob. You don't write it once. It gets written three times before your API returns. Okay, so i got three copies. So if anything goes wrong, and by the way, we're smart about that. They're on, th- those three copies are on like three separate racks. So not just if a disk dies you still have two copies. Not just if a server dies, you have two other copies. Not if a rack dies, you still have two other copies. We call that blue smoke when the rack dies. Yeah. Yeah. The, the blue smoke, you know, when someone does something detrimental to the data, because it's typically not the rack dies. It's person ran into it with a crash cart or something or accidentally severed the, the power, and it cre- used to create blue smoke from the electrical discharge back in the day. So anytime you, you cause some kind of horrible accident in the data center, that's a blue smoke is the code word. I just wanted it. to interject a little bit of tribal knowledge there. That's great. <laughs> but go on, yes, if you lose the entire rack, you have rack-level awareness. Yeah. yeah, you still have two copies. And so then we've had other types of storage. 
GRS or globally redundant storage where you write the three copies and then you can write another copy on a different region. But we've added two things. We added something just recently. ZRS? ZRS? Yes. Oh, uh, stole the thunder. Man. Yeah. <laughs> He's been paying attention in class. So what's ZRS? So ZRS is zone redundant storage. So, you know, we talk about regions, but in fact, regions are made up of multiple data centers, and these multiple data centers exist in multiple buildings. So zone redundant storage basically says, hey, you do a write, I'm going to make three copies, but I'm not just going to put them on three racks. I'm going to put them on three racks in three separate buildings. So if a building burns down, you still have two copies. And this brings you back to the earlier point, you know, I may not be shredding disks or doing firmware checks. I probably could. I can't just have three data centers. Yeah, exactly. you know, that's just not feasible from a financial pr- as a as a private entity. That's not going to happen. Exactly. So this to me is like that's the the crown jewels of redundancy is is this something I as a customer or I as an architect could design for? Sure, I could design for it. Could I actually buy that Feasibly, and afford it and yeah. make it you know make a part of my business? Probably not, unless you're really huge. And most people don't want to be in the data center business anyways. Uh, yep. Holistically. Yeah. I'll hit you up, Mike, with a question. Because earlier we were talking about the different virtual machines that we're seeing. Like the H series is in public preview now. That's the high performance computing series. And the GPU enabled virtual machines is the N series. Of the, and it's like in my head, I know what the N stands for, but the N and the NV series <laughs> graphics virtual machine. Did you have anything that when you saw that kind of come out, you're like, oh, that's interesting. I can think of a use case for it. And then I'll, I'll basically tie that into uh, Jeff as well. When we first talked about it on Sunday, it was, it was more around, you know, uh, before they even mentioned some of the use cases that they were testing on it for it. Um, the first thing I thought about was a typical one is like medical imaging. Okay. So medical imaging is like it, it requires so much graphical horsepower. You would think CAD does, but take, take that to like the 10th degree, okay? Because med- CAD, I can do it on my desktop with, right, with right, enough. Right. Right. Yeah. But when you start getting into actually looking at, at skeletal images and MRIs and things like that, like, I, you know, when I was helping out healthcare, you're talking about machines that used to be running, you know, they build up this little room that we're in uh, that would have to help the doctors actually be able to see those images. So that's the first thing I thought about. And if you have that ability to do that from, you know, the, from the cloud, be able to actually have doctors or physicians from anywhere in the world being able to look at that imaging and, and render that imaging because that, as you know, the graphical requires all that rendering, all that CPU power, 128 cores or whatever it is and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very intense. That was the first thing I thought about that from, you know, a, a real use case. And, of course, that's something that they mentioned afterwards. They were like, yeah, we use this, you know, <laughs> medical imaging. I'm like, yeah. I was going to say, so you're being tested, you know, Jeff. Is it, how close is he on the ball with the use cases? Or do you have any use cases that you're thinking about? Because what I got from kind of the news and the blogs and seeing the, the speeches around it was just there's no longer a reason to say, no, I can't do it in this environment. It's not necessarily that we have to focus everything into a use case, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that can go salty and say, like, you know, I'm looking to do ML, I'm looking to do HPC, I'm looking to do predictive analytics, and that uh, I just can't, and now I can. So to me, it's just like the, the canvas, if I were Bob Ross, it's now bigger than <laughs> twice as many paints. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, well, it's intelligent cloud, intelligent edge, right? So the ability to tie those two together. Honestly, I'm more focused in on the intelligent edge, and that's where I've been think- doing a bunch of thinking. 
So, you know, you mentioned data box. Yeah, let's go back to that. Talk about the and I got to say, we were, we were talking earlier, the, the names for this, I got to tell the audience first. There's Databox is now GA, like the Databox. There's Databox Edge Preview. There's Databox Gateway Preview. And then Databox Heavy Preview, which uh, I guess that's based off like uh, space rockets. Oh, no, rock, rocket heavy. Like, yeah, Falcon yeah, Heavy. Falcon, Falcon Heavy. heavy. Yeah. SpaceX Falcon yeah, I told Heavy. Them that oh, was a terrible name. <laughs> but they said, oh, no, it's a great name. Is it, it is. Really? So, yeah, it's like Falcon Heavy. After we've explained, and that's what I want to evangelize. Like, okay, as long as it's related to space or rockets, I'm cool with it. There you go. <laughs> So, yeah, talk about Databox and, and what you're thinking there. Yeah, so let's talk about the Databox Edge. So the Databox Edge is a one-use server. It's a great model, right? You said, ah, you know, here's the thing. You're not sure what the heck this Databox is? I'll tell you what. Go buy one. Or you know what? You don't <laughs> buy one. You order one. We send it to you. It costs you a couple hundred dollars a month. Whenever you're done, just send it back to us. So with a couple hundred dollars, you can figure out whether this thing works for you or not. It's crazy, right? It's not I'm like... really tempted to order one to my apartment right now. Yeah. I don't know what I would do with it. <laughs> no, it's pretty cool. And, and indeed, so it's a 1U device. It connects up to your Azure storage and acts like a, a, a front end to your Azure storage. So basically, it's a bi-directional cache for Azure blobs. Uh, locally, it provides a SMB and NFS and a blob interface. So you just write to this thing. It's got an amazing storage subsystem. Just, you know, have you work out the, the details. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's amazingly fast. So you write to this thing. Boom, it comes back to you. It then uh, sends that back up to Azure Storage. You can configure portions to say, no, keep this local only. I'll talk about that in just a second. And then it also gives you your entire Azure Blob namespace. So you can access that stuff, and it'll bring it down from the cloud and, and give you access wait, to wait, it. Wait, wait, wait. So I can just address my normal Azure namespace locally now? Correct. It looks like local storage. Yeah. That's pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fast. And that's also true with the, the um, Edge Gateway, because the Edge Gateway is just a virtual appliance. Yes. And that's pretty much all it is. And the, the Edge Gateway is basically going to be do the same thing where... If you think about it, you know, you just see it as a local device, a local storage device, and it'll do the sync for you up to the cloud. And, you know, it's not something you have to send back. It's not, you're not renting it from Microsoft. You don't have to send it back. It's just a VM. Yeah. That's all it is. That thing's great. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it, it, it really for the SMB market is what I, you know, I picture because you're going to have folks that are going to want to use the IoT uh, portion of the, edge, the actual edge gateway in the larger corporations and things like that. There's a lot more benefit to that to them than, you know, the SMB market, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So now let's talk about this intelligent cloud, intelligent edge, okay? So you've heard about these modern serverless models, right? So modern serverless application model basically says, the way I think of it is, remember the old uh, Windows message loop? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it is the Windows message loop without the Windows and without being in a single process, which is to say everything's event-driven. Events come in, and they go somewhere. In the past, it was the message loop, and then it would call your code. Well, same thing happens. You have events that come in, and then they call your code, functions or logic apps or whatever, and they do things. Okay? It's just there's no beginning and end. It just goes on forever. When you pull on that thread, the majority of the events are storage events. This blob just got written, uh, et cetera. Then fire something, process the blob, and hand it off to somebody else. That's a very unique way of thinking of it. You're, you're challenging my perspective. I like it. Keep going. Yay. So now let's think about the demo that we gave. And it puts everything in focus and explains why we took Microsoft chip technology, the brainwave, 
artificial intelligent chips and put it in Data Edge. Wait, you can't just bring up something like Brayway and not explain it to. Okay, (laughs) Okay. we're going to get there. All right. So, So imagine I've got this Databox Edge and I got a bunch of 4K you know, uh, uh, cameras out there surveilling the world, right? Taking a look at this, you know, either for security or public security reasons or just monitoring things, inventory, et cetera. You take this video, store it. That's a lot, right? And you want high resolution for good recognition. So you store all this. You could send, if you send it all the way back to Azure for ML, you know, recognition, object recognition, that's pretty heavy bandwidth consumption, yeah, I need my OC48 connected to my, you know. Oh, that's I guess that's kind of old networking terms. There, but, you know, <laughs> that is old. My 100 gig you just You just showed your age. <laughs> you just showed your age. Everything is T or OC, all right? Uh, but no, I get it. It's locally processing the events driven from the image recognition, which is it. if I see your face or movement isn't supposed to be happening and it is, trigger the alert. That's all locally processed. There's nothing going up to Azure. That's the dot. So I mentioned you can configure set a storage that doesn't automatically get transferred. So that's where those files go. They don't get uploaded always. But when they get written, an event fires. So this is where Databox integrates with IoT Hub, IoT Hub and IoT uh, uh, Edge. IoT Edge is the thing that allows containers to be brought down and executed. So you can bring, you configure an ML container containing the code that does image recognition, and you can register it to be run when storage events happen. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so we showed this demo of, hey, here's all this video populating this folder. Uh, This container running the ML uh, code runs every time it gets it. It uh, categorizes the objects, etc., and stores it in a different directory. And and here the idea is that it would store like just a JPEG and then all the metadata, and then that would get forwarded up. Okay? And then... If something was interesting, like you might say, hey, it's JPEG, or you say, hey, if I find this object, then move the whole thing up. Or even transcode it to a different codec or different quality. You got it. Yeah. So, But here's the point. So ML, pretty expensive, right? pretty heavy computing. It will run on a regular CPU, but relatively slowly. Well, whatever, it's whatever speed. This is pretty darn good computing. But that's where Databox Edge has the brainwave chip. So the Brainwave chip is Microsoft technology. We've invented a chip to accelerate AI, and that ML container has access to that. So, man, it just goes fast, fast, fast. I have to tell you that some of the when we heard about this on Sunday, just so you know, some of the folks that work for you that explained it to you, the MVPs, didn't do as good a job as you just did. That was very clear. I, I totally get where you guys are going with that. That's that's awesome. Well, just hearing the story, I'm like, <laughs> I'm literally taking notes. I'm, I'm trying, like, okay, this, can, you know, the elbow connects to the the hip bone, you know, whatever it is here. So let's let's make sure we get it right. We have a device with DataBox Edge sitting on prem, and potentially something's feeding it data. And there's also a container nearby with the IoT Edge yes. device. Yep, it gets pulled. And down. that is sitting there, kind of watching the data box data and saying, "No, it, it oh, it's downloads. It. It, it's on the data box Edge, okay. and it downloads containers. Okay. So it works with IoT Hub, and in IoT Hub, that's the Azure control plane. You say, "Hey, on that device, I want to run this container image. Sure. That container image then gets pulled down from Azure." gets run, scheduled to say, hey, when an event pops, when a storage shows up here, hand it to this container, that container uses the Brainwave chip, boom. And that allows you to do that processing locally, 
Okay, because we're talking about images here. You could be talking about anything, but think about it. Then you could actually uh, take that a step further, fire off an event, and bring all that imaging information into Microsoft Search. Ding. And be able to <laughs> bing. Why did you say bing? <laughs> bing. Oh. Yeah, ooh. he did the bing. He we'll did have the, to censor that. He you did the bing. what he just said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that's a good point because one of the challenges I think people have either cognitively or just from past experiences getting burned is how far do I go into an ecosystem before I start running into lack of integration? Right. Yeah. So right. This, right. Is, this is where, like, originally when I heard Databox, I'm thinking, you know, just a piece of storage. And then you're like, oh, no, no, you can actually download containers onto it and load it with different software and have it do different event-driven triggers. And, oh, it has this special brainwave chip in there that accelerates AI. I'm like, okay. I was thinking more like a Synology with, you know, a fancy Microsoft logo. I was wrong. And then, Mike, you're saying this can also further through other integrations. Absolutely. Like, that's the magic. And not only that, but uh, there was some questions, and I, I don't know if Jeffrey wants to address this or not, but there was some questions about the Store Simple and how that's going to, you know, play into this because Microsoft was pushing a Store Simple device, which is basically what you said. It's like, oh, it's just storage. Yeah, actually, it's the Store Simple team that's now taken this as the right. next generation. Right. Yep. right. By the way, you wanna, you, now you want your head to explode? Yes. I need you to put it back together first, but please, <laughs> go, go ahead. Okay. So here's the big story. The big story I think most people are missing. Okay? The grand overarching narrative of the industry is this. We hit the Wayback Machine. Way back when, when I started in this industry, there were a few dominant players, right? IBM, DEC, et cetera. DEC, wow. Yeah. DEC, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bringing okay. back some memories. Yeah. By the way, a little, little piece of trivia. Go ahead. Microsoft has had exactly three chief architects for Windows Server. All three were previously consulting engineers at DEC. Does that include you? Were you there? Yeah. Okay. So I was like, I think, I think you're talking about yourself. Dave Cutler, <laughs> Dave frickin' Cutler, yep. Bill frickin' Lang, and then myself. Now, I have no idea how I ended up on that list, but I did. And I was a consulting <laughs> engineer, too. But we all came from digital. Anyway, so the, back then, we, we had what was called a, ver, a vertically aligned industry. And what that meant was IBM and digital both built their own chips, they built their own boards, they built their own systems, they built their own operating systems, they built the applications, and they serviced them. Then there was what was called the disintegration of the computer industry, where the computer industry shifted from a vertically aligned industry to a horizontally aligned industry. Chips came from Intel or Motorola. Operating systems came from Microsoft or Sun Microsystems. Applications came from a wide group of people, services from a wide group, etc. So it became disintegrated. And it, we have lived in a disintegrated world. The big overarching narrative is that cloud vendors operate at such a large scale that the industry is becoming re-vertically integrated. Okay. So okay. Microsoft, a software company, first started designing our own servers and then giving those servers to the community through OCP. Project so Olympus. We're design- yeah. So oh, we're that's doing- the Open Compute Project, right? Exactly. Yeah. So now we're doing our own servers. Then we started to do our own chips, FPGAs for storage, data encryption at rest, compression. Then data inc- uh, uh, for our own NICs for fast accelerated software-defined networking. Now our own AI chips. 
We're building our own quantum computing. So I, think, <laughs> well, yeah, I saw that last year with the quantum. I think he's getting to the Microsoft turning into a hardware company. Is that yeah, well? It's where a vertic- Let's where are you going here. with it? It is a vertically aligned company. We're becoming a vertically aligned company. So you've gone back to the old IBM days. Yeah, it's not fully that there's way. A, yeah, there's a difference not- because it's cloud versus. Sure. I'm not bringing this stuff on prem. I sort of am with Azure Stack, but yes, we'll talk exactly. about it in just a moment. But yep. Yeah, you're, you're, and the way I'm going with this, it's because you've had to build a massive globally distributed compute system, yep. those compute storage network, et cetera, system with public cloud, that the economies of scale just kind of forced you into this. Exactly. You, know, you, exactly. Can't, you can't rely on someone else's supply chain when this is literally the bread and butter of your business. And that's the thing. You know, it's, you, people are so focused in on like, oh, solving this problem, solving that problem. Uh, a bunch of people have not stepped back to say, hey, wait, what's, what's really going on here and seen what's happening? Now, just to be clear, I think it will not return to that full thing. I think that you will see a hybrid. I don't know. I have a Microsoft laptop, you know, so I'm just, I'm in. That's that's true. (laughs) It's true. But it has an Intel chip in it. You don't see that changing for quite some time. Yet. Et cetera. Yet. Maybe. But anyway, so no, I think it'll be, uh, but, you know, honestly, even back then, digital, I don't think, did its own PCB boards. So it was always a combination. And so the question is, where is the combination? And I think it's wherever there's a mismatch between the needs of the general population and, and the needs first of the cloud. And then, look, the cloud, we built our own AI chips for the cloud, and now we're going to take that technology and make it available to a broader group of people first through Databox Edge. Sure. Let's go into the Azure Stack news because yeah. the only thing I had really I did a I did a poor job like absorbing what the news was. I know that I found the expansion to sixteen node instead of twelve node, which I was like, okay, that's just a thing. Mike, you were telling me about you can do a dark site install now where there's no internet required. Right. There's no connectivity required where in previous revisions you had to have some sort of connectivity. Um, but also what's on the floor here at the show is the actual ruggedized Azure stack in the back of a truck that you can pretty much take anywhere. Right? Yeah. Is that <laughs> crazy? So that, that's, that's where our knowledge is at. Jeffrey, level it up. What else is going on with Azure stack since we talked last year where it was kind of like, I think it had just GA'd at Ignite last year. Yes, that's correct. And we had talked about the use cases. And honestly, I'm a huge fan of a public cloud provider hybridizing how they deploy their services and building an Azure region on-prem makes total sense. And to be you know, a little bit of fanboy, I think you and the other folks at Microsoft kind of started that trend. And I'm seeing the copycats kind of floating everywhere in different ways. It's very nice to see yeah. other people copy at Microsoft. Yeah. You know, you know, you, uh, I think Microsoft gets credit as being a fast follower. In this case, I'm like, no, they kind of started this whole... And at the time, Azure Stack was like, that's crazy. Why would you want cloud on-prem? I'm like, people have been really bad at private cloud for a long time. Oh, most of them fail. Yeah, they do. By far. They do. So why not just take what you already know and make the experience kind of similar on, on both sides? So I'll pause there. Let's talk about Azure Stack. What's the news? Yeah, so here's the thing. Let me give you the. I'll tell you what's new and what will be new next year. And year, in, and year. Yeah. <laughs> it's always three things. It's always three things. We always work on fundamentals. We always resync versions with Azure. And we always expand our Azure compatibility surface, additional services. That's it. That's the news. Now, then the specifics. Each year, a little different. 
performance has gone up. Uh, we continue to upgrade. We upgrade every single month. That continues to do very, very well. Upgrade we have, the code deployed or hardware yeah. or both? And no. you can do online and offline. You used to have to do only online. Now you can do offline as well, which is kind of cool. Yeah. No, <laughs> we, we do an update, and we update. Uh, you know, we do security patches. We do our bug fixes, and we do new features every single month. Is it patch Thursday, patch Wednesday, patch Sunday? Is it a different patch it, cycle? Or? Well, and I don't want to interrupt you. I mean, he's, he's just, <laughs> Mike's he's, very excited about he's just, it. I am. I, I'm really excited really about is. this technology because uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. But it's really kind of cool because it's gotten to a point where it's the same thing as what's happening in the cloud. You're not really sure when it's patched. You don't, you're not really sure when new features are brought down to it. I mean, you can be made aware of it like we are with Azure. You can be... You can be put on a list. You can uh, uh, subscribe to a list that tells you these features are being deployed. Wait, so I'm not patching it? It's not like a WSUS server doing it or something? Oh, no, no, I'm no. kind of dating myself. But. No, in fact, that's one of the key value propositions is that it's not a WSUS server. We get the Windows patches, and then we integrate that into our stuff, and then we do a full test pass. So your customer zero. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, and so that's why there's always a bit of a delay between when Windows releases it and we release it. I'm fine with that. Test it in your environment first. No, that's one of the... Don't make me the beta tester. That is the value of Azure Stack. That's exactly correct. In fact, so you might let this... You you said that your your audience was geeks, so here's the deal. Don't don't prove me wrong, audience. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) We're going to get nerdy. One of the big architectural changes that we've done over the course of this year was to shift from basically patching systems, updating systems, to immutable infrastructure. So in immutable infrastructure, I do not patch the system. I throw the system away and replace it with an up-to-date one. Okay? Now, here's, here's the news. Windows, not entirely designed <laughs> with that mindset <laughs> not, in mind. Not quite no, yeah. no, no. So, but a lot of the components, I assume, in there can be treated that way. It's been a challenge. Okay. Uh, but we've been working with the Windows team and, you know, step by step getting that, you know, getting the desired state configuration uh, providers necessary to make this the case. But now we have a fully immutable system. So what that means, and here's why I'm so excited about it. Like you say, well, what's the difference at the end of the day? It's the same thing. It's like yes and no. One is every single month I'm replacing every single component with a fresh component. So one, if there's ever any leaks of logs or somebody's, you know, Whatever, I'm replacing that. That stuff all gets thrown away. So it's refreshed. So at the worst case, your kind of surface area for threats or whatnot is one month. Oh, now you got it. Oh, <laughs> you, took it, you stole oh, this thunder. Check, <laughs> you stole this thunder. Check out the big brain on Brad. Well, we all, we all know, like, after a couple of years of just patching and upgrading, there's this kind of octopus of, you know, DLLs here. And yes. Files there. And, yes. And it's kind of a practice that I go through is every couple of years I just wipe and start over. You got so it. So just do that every month. Every month. There we go. Okay, but now here's the thing. You've heard these stories, right? The bad guys get into your enterprise, and, and how long does it take to find them? For the people, do you know the numbers? For the for the people for the for the smub subset of people who actually find the invader, do you know how long it takes to find them? I thought it was. Uh, no, I'm not even one guess. hour. Go ahead. No, good lord! <laughs> it's like you were one clueless. hour sounds horrible to me. It's worse. Yeah. It's- no, the average, and this is of the subset, and it is a small subset of the people who actually find the invader. It was two years ago. No, three years ago, it was 200 days. 200 days. 200 days. That's over and half then a year. It was huge when oh, it got down to 160. So again, let's be clear: bad guy gets into your system, owns your system. It's 160 days on average before you can find them. And a victim that's even longer. Okay? That's to find them. 
with Azure Stack, let's say they get in. Every single month, I throw them out. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. He's got to start all over again. <laughs> now here, you could say, oh, but if they're vulnerable, they'll just come back in. I'll say two things. One is, every single month, I'm telling the team, I, this month, we have to be more secure than next month. What are you doing to increase the security this month? Every single month, I get better on security. And I'm just, the team is passionate about that. I'm passionate about that. We get better every single month. But number two is, let's say I don't find that vulnerability, fix it. And they come back next month. They had to make a move. And one of the ways you find the bad guys is when they make a move. When they get in and they can just be there in silent, you're not going to find them. Or if you do, you know, 200 days to find Too them. Many days, yes. Too many I days. Too many I was thinking an hour. I was way Oh, off. yeah. But no. now you know what to look for. So that's going to trip analytics right there. You're going to be watching for that person. So after you... You, you know, you found out they were there or whatever, but then, you know, you start up a new instance, you start, you know, you, you bring in that, that new environment. It's almost like a tripwire. But let's, let's clarify, though. This is the subsystem underneath Azure Stack we're talking about. That's correct. Where I don't have any passwords. It's all black box to me, right? Correct. It's not yeah. like they've, you know, fished out my password. Because I don't have the ability to, like, destroy that lower layer, right? You've locked me out. This could be man in the middle. Yeah. It could be, yeah, things yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so you're still yeah. responsible for your tenant stuff. But, yeah, the infrastructure. You do not have to worry about your infrastructure. I don't know if you've ever looked at the security posture of Azure Stack. But I'll tell you, there's many, many things I'm very happy about Azure Stack. But the security posture of Azure Stack. And always got to be quiet and be humble. We are humble and because we don't want to brag. And But it really... We focused in on it, and it, we, the team did an amazingly good job. Not good enough that every month I don't ask them for more. We continue <laughs> to increase it, but the team is super passionate about getting the security so, right. And, and to take that a little bit further, really looking towards, uh, if you're looking down the future and you're going to uh, uh, mention this or not, but the integration, being able to integrate Azure Stack with Azure so you have a single point for both the on-premises and the cloud. That is becoming key. I've heard more more shops that have put in Azure Stack. They're like, "Well, I got to manage manage this over here, and then I got and now." So Microsoft's giving me two other points that I have to manage. Yeah, yeah. But I'm managing basically the same environment. Yep. So why can't I do it through just going into the Azure portal and taking care of both of them, either on prem or um, up in the cloud? Yeah, you know that reminds me of the story about somebody said, "Well, you know, when when someone's homeless." And then they move to living underneath the bridge. Then they'll say, hey, where's my cardboard box? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so indeed, this, this group of people who have failed, 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 failed forever on private clouds now have one that works. And they'll say, ah, oh, I got two control planes. It's great. Yeah. Please tell me all your pain points. We will get to them. But that, I will tell you, is a very, very, very good problem to have. <laughs> oh, this working private cloud I have makes me do things in two places. Yeah. Well, I, I, the, the thought I had on that was that, uh, and it's something I've mentioned before on, on the show, is that security isn't something that prevents features from being developed and pushed out, right? You don't have to make something secure to make it work. And so if you're putting it top of mind, then you're going to be strategically ahead of basically everybody because security is usually not even on the, the it's not even on the content plan when you're building software. It's you know kind of if we have time at the end. Yeah, you know one of the greatest things we did was to uh, uh, use uh, Device Guard. So Device Guard basically says there's a well-defined set of software that can run on the system, and nothing else can. So we have examples. I did an example last year. We said, okay, so now imagine like. Don't know how you do this, but imagine the bad guy gets the password. Like, here, I'm going to give you the password. You're a bad guy. Here's a password. 
here's a way I'm going to break it intentionally. I don't know how they do it, but imagine they actually had the ability to go do this. And they download some software and won't run. Just will not run because only software that we authorize to run will run. And that's huge. And so as we go through, well, you know, what about this and what about this and what about this? The fact that the only thing that can run is our software is just this incredible benefit. All right. Well, we're drawing to a close of today's show. Uh, I want to thank you both very much for coming on. Jeffrey, how can folks follow you on the Internet, blog, Twitter, you know, anything you want to promote so they can catch up with you after the yeah, show? Yeah, so I'm pretty heavy uh, Twitterer, although don't follow me if you're not a fan of the whole person Twitterer. That is to <laughs> say, I Twitter about a lot of things. He does. Health, he does. science, a little bit of politics, not too much. Try and go light on that. But I'm a whole, family, a whole person Twitterer, and that's at J Snover, J-S-N-O-V as in victory, E-R. There's no W. Jay Snover. Okay, gotcha. And then, uh, Mike, where are you at on the internet, blog, Twitter, et cetera? Where yep, people uh, follow you? yep, Twitter, uh, at Now Media. That's the best way to get a hold of me. And, uh, you know, um, I, I do kind of the same thing. I, I'm a, a, a well-rounded Twitterer, if you will. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. This show is coming to you live from Microsoft Ignite. And I would like to thank Microsoft for flying me out here and giving me a whole booth to uh, do this podcast. Uh, much love, both direct, bi-directional love. And uh, tune in again for another episode of The Data Knots. Can you talk, Jeff? Yep, I can talk. And Testing Mike, one, two, three. I think everybody's lit, so this is the recording. Everybody's from... lit. <laughs> <laughs>